15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and thank you again for joining us on Space Nuts where we talk astronomy, space science and anything else interesting that's happening in heaven and here on Earth. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and this week we're going to be looking at a little bit of a moon mystery. The uh, moon's magnetic field has made the news, so we'll have a look at that. Uh, a gigantic exoplanet has been found under unusual circumstances is the way I read this story. And uh, we, we got a, a listener tip the other day, which we're going to follow up. There's a, a bit of a search on for a Falcon rocket body, and they think it might have crashed into the moon, and they're asking amateur astronomers and space photographers to maybe provide some uh, information that might help them find it. So we'll tell you about that a little later, and, uh, yeah, thanks for sending that in. And questions? surprisingly, about the James Webb Telescope and the James Webb Telescope and the Oort Cloud and uh, a couple other things we're going to chuck in for free uh, on this week's episode of Space Nuts. Joining me, as always, of course, is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing this morning? I am quite well, thank you, sir. Survived 35 years of marriage, so yes, oh, all, all is well. Congratulations. That's uh, that's an achievement. That. Yes, that was. Uh, we had our anniversary this week. 35 years. We both woke up and went, 35 years, really? <laughs> it just doesn't feel that long. No, that's nice. Mm. But it's good. Well, you're still in love, and still you, young. I never said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course we are. No, it's lovely. Uh, we went out for dinner and uh, lovely, and, and just so, sat there and sort of pondered our thirty-five years and wondered where it all went. And yeah, we'll uh, we'll push on for thirty-five more. Not sure we'll get well, that, but um, I think yeah, we'll you, give it a you, crack. Yep, <laughs> you've got <laughs> a few a few youngsters around uh, to demonstrate where it all went. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, yeah. four grandchildren now yeah. as of November. Hmm. Yep. Now, Fred, uh, let us uh, get down to the business of talking astronomy and space science, and we are looking at uh, the mystery of the moon's magnetic field, and I'm gathering from just uh, glossing my eyes over this story that this sort of uh, is something they've analysed through historic samples, historic data. Is that right? Yeah, indeed. It's uh, from the uh, Apollo mission sample returns back in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, ooh, uh, let me see if I can remember the number. I think it was 387 or thereabouts kilograms of material came back uh, from the moon. It's uh, Which is why it's moving away from us because it's so much lighter now. Lighter than it was, that's right. Yeah, it's a significant amount that was brought back. Uh, I might have that number wrong, but it's usually in my head, but it's a bit vague at the moment. It's there, that, that sort of order anyway. Um, so that, that material was brought back and has been, you know, in, in many ways, it's one of the greatest scientific treasure troves that we've ever had uh, because it's taught us so much about not just the moon and its origin, but the origin of the, of the Earth and indeed the origin of the solar system. It's um, been absolutely fantastic. What number uh, did you say? I said 387. 382. Oh. 
<laughs> All right, that's not bad. Maybe I'm not Pretty losing good. it as much as a, I thought a seven can look like a two sometimes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, that's good. Oh, thanks for that. That's cheered me up no end. <laughs> um, so now the, the the bottom line is that the moon doesn't have a magnetic field today. Um, that's mm. one of the things that's been known since the early days of the space age. Uh, the um, you know the uh, in contrast with the Earth, which has got a fairly substantial magnetic field, uh, the, the Moon doesn't. But some of those rock samples that have been brought back have uh, evidence within them that tell you that they formed in the presence of a strong magnetic field, um, one that, um, in fact, probably comparable with the Earth's magnetic field. So that's really interesting because, well, first of all, there ain't a magnetic field now. So what happened to it? But secondly, um, the you know, okay, you've got evidence that the from the rocks that the rocks formed in the in the presence of a magnetic field and a strong magnetic field. How does a body the size of the moon, a quarter of the diameter of the Earth? One eightieth of the mass of the Earth. How does a body that size generate a magnetic field as strong as the Earth's magnetic field? Yeah, and that's the big mystery. That is, you know, well, number one is where's the magnetic field gone? Number two is how on Earth did you manage to to, to demonstrate uh, to, to to actually, um, you know, to, for the Moon to to produce a magnetic field that strong? Now, this uh, has created a 50-year-old mystery, um, and uh, it's, it now seems to have either, well, you know, I think we could say it's been resolved, but probably what it, what, what a better way of, uh, of, of putting it is that there is a new explanation that has been proposed uh, for this magnetic mystery. And it comes from scientists at uh, Brown University um, uh, in the USA. So... Essentially, what these scientists have done, uh, and uh, actually there's one of the lead authors is also from Stanford University, just to get the, the attributions correct. Um, what they've done is, is looked at models of the moon's um, in, internal structure uh, oh, during its early history. Mm. And it, it, it seems that you could get a situation where uh, rocks, if you think of think of the moon as having a core and a mantle, which is what the Earth has got, the Earth's got the same sort of structure, and the mantle is that region where the rock is fairly soft and moves around by convection. And in the Earth's case, that causes the plate tectonics because it's the convection within the mantle that provides the energy to drive the the, the um, shifting continental plates and uh, oceanic crust. So plate tectonics is driven by convection in the mantle. So if you think about that, the way these, um, you know, these flows of magma go up and down in the mantle, but think about it in the moon, um, they, they've come to the conclusion that... Uh, the there are bodies of rock, uh, sort of semi-liquid rock, mm. uh, which can move through the interior of the moon relatively quickly, and by doing that, generate magnetic fields. And partly that's due to some of the materials within them. They they um, uh, 
things like titanium, which are actually within, you know, within these rocks, a high density of titanium, uh, which, so that's a metallic thing. And that, you know, intuitively you can, um, certainly for somebody who's a non-expert on this sort of thing like me, I can get the impression that that might churn up some magnetic fields. Um, but it, But there's details in this study that really lead them to, uh, to have, a, I think, a fairly high degree of confidence that this is 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 going to produce the kind of magnetic fields that have been observed. So um, I'm just trying to find uh, a quote from one of the authors, um, which uh, this actually is Alexander Evans, who's at um, uh, uh, Brown University, as I mentioned. Uh, and Alexander says, everything we've thought about how magnetic fields are generated by planetary cores tells us that a body of the moon's size should not be able to generate a field that's as strong as Earth's. But instead of thinking about how to power a strong magnetic field continuously over billions of years, maybe there's a way to get a high-intensity field intermittently. Our model shows how that can happen, and it's consistent with what we know about the moon's interior. And it is all about these, these churning uh, you know, blobs of material going up and down uh, in the moon's uh, in the moon's mantle, the region around the core, um, they suggest that these are actually as small as sixty kilometers in diameter, oh. uh, and they uh, these are t the titanium formations I mentioned before, uh, and they they sink uh, over the course of about a billion years. So you know that it's not it's not the fast forward thing. This it's a relatively slow process, mm. but um, what they suggest is that when these blobs of material hit the bottom, and by the bottom they mean the moon's core itself. Um, then they they basically uh, stir up the, the 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 what the, what is called the moon's core dynamo, and that's presumably because the moon has a metallic core. Uh, they stir that up and generate these high magnetic fields for a short period, um, partly because um, the the things that are uh, the the blobs of titanium rich material that are flowing down are much cooler than the core temperature of the moon and so there's a you know there's a sort of bang when this happens generating a magnetic field at the surface uh, that is really strong like the earth's and they suggest, oh, here's, here's a comment from one of the other authors uh, in this paper. You can think of it a little bit like a drop of water hitting a hot skillet. You've got something really cold that touches the core and suddenly a lot of heat can flux out. That causes churning in the core to increase, which gives you these intermittently strong magnetic fields. Um, and as many as 100 of these downwelling events over the moon's first billion years have been postulated, and each one could produce a magnetic field that might last 100 years or so. And so that's where these magnetic signatures come from in the Apollo rock samples. Uh, and um, one, one other thing that perhaps, you know, in a, in a sense supports this theory is that some of the other rock samples that came back with the Apollo astronauts show no evidence of having a magnetic signature. There, there isn't the alignment of grains that you find when there's been a strong magnetic field. I was going to ask you how, how they can figure it out by looking at the rocks, but you just said it, the alignment. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I meant to mention that right at the start of this, Andrew. No, that's okay. Uh, I would have asked. 
<laughs> well, you did. Um, yeah, so it's, it's all about the alignment of, of, the, of the grain structure in the, in the material. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. I suppose when you think about it, rocks tell us a lot of things, like uh, rock samples on Mars are going to tell us about water presence and perhaps former life. Uh, it, it, I think geology pays, uh, pays, plays a very big role in us understanding how things were over periods of time that we didn't even exist as a species. Yes, that's, well, that's right. And that's um, fascinating. You know, one of the other things, just a bit more closely related to what we're talking about, though, that it's, it's rock samples from beneath the ocean bed that tell us about magnetic reversals on the Earth's magnetic field, the fact mm -hmm. that we know that every, you know, maybe two or three times per million years the Earth's magnetic field swaps so the North magnetic pole becomes the South. I've actually seen a rock like that and, and what had happened was that somebody had drawn an N at the top of it <laughs> And then they'd scribbled it out and drew an N at the bottom. So I knew, I knew, you knew that. that's what had happened. That's what had happened. There'd yeah. been a reversal. Uh, yeah. That's what you call a magnetic pole reversal. That's right. And probably a slight reversal of logic there as well. But never mind. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Plenty of that at my end. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay, so it looks perhaps like they may have solved the mystery yeah. of the moon's magnetic field. It's a very nice piece of work, I think, and well done to uh, the scientists at Brown and Stanford who've done that work. Probably. Yes, indeed. Wonderful. You're listening to, and if you're on YouTube, watching Space Nuts. And it's good to have your company. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, I did mention YouTube, and if you do uh, have an, a YouTube account or you like to... Uh, get onto YouTube occasionally and see what's going on. We do have an official page. It's youtube.com slash C slash Space Nuts. I'm sure if you just did uh, a YouTube search for Space Nuts, you'd either get that really terrible sci-fi movie, which was called Space Nuts, or you would find us. Uh, if you put Space Nuts podcast in, you've got a better chance. But uh, all our episodes are there. Uh, and, of course, uh, the more recent ones are, in fact, showing our faces. That's pretty scary stuff. <laughs> but uh, if you can tolerate that, uh, you can catch uh, all the uh, Space Nuts back catalogue on YouTube. We've got nearly 2,000 subscribers there, Fred, believe it or not, which is, wow. uh, which is fantastic. fantastic. Only 100 million more and they'll start paying us a dollar a week, <laughs> apparently. Uh, now, um, so, yeah, if you'd like to uh, join us on YouTube, uh, just uh, have a look around for us and uh, we'd be happy to have you add to the, um, the 1.95 thousand people that are already there. Okay, Fred, a gigantic exoplanet has been found under unusual circumstances. Where is it, what is it, and who found it, and why is it unusual? In well, 20 words or less. 20 words or less. <laughs> well, I'll, I might quote... Um, Paul Dalba, who is, I hope I'm pr pronouncing his name correctly, he's uh, an astronomer at uh, University of California, Riverside. Uh, and um, I, this is probably more than 20 words, but it's very succinctly explains why this object, whose name is TOI-2180b, why, uh, why it's important. He says, uh, TOI-2180b is such an exciting planet to have found. It hits the trifecta of one, 
having a several hundred day orbit, two being relatively close to Earth, 379 light years is considered close for an exoplanet, and three, us being able to see it transit in front of its star. It is very rare for astronomers to discover a planet that checks all three of these boxes. Wow. That's more than 20 words, but that, that it's, highlights... It's yeah, it's a, it's a big planet um, as well, 261-day orbit around its parent star. Uh, it's um, has it's a, a planet whose diameter is roughly the same as Jupiter, uh, but um, actually three times more massive. Mm. Um, and it, in in fact, it's it's unusual um, because it contains one hundred and five times the mass of the Earth in elements heavier than helium and hydrogen. That means it's a very, what we in astronomy would call a metal-rich uh, planet. Um, uh, astronomers call a metal anything that's not hydrogen and helium. And that's one of the loony right. things about what we do. Yeah, that doesn't um, necessarily mean solid, though. No, it, and, it, and it doesn't mean iron or, you know, or uh, platinum or anything like that. It, it, it also includes sodium and, well, sodium is a metal, but beg your pardon, it <laughs> includes oxygen and, you know, that they're all metals uh, to an astronomer. Mm. For reasons that I don't need to go into now. Anyway, it's so it's really metal rich, uh, but why why is it um, you know a spectacular discovery, uh, and why is it an unusual team that has found this? And it it is because uh, well the TOI tells you that it was discovered by the TESS uh, planet finding spacecraft. Um, was it Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite? I think that's what the acronym stands for. TOI stands for TESS Object of Interest, I think. Yeah. Um, and so it was discovered by uh, this planet having been observed to pass in front of its parent star uh, and dip the light of its parent star slightly. Um, and that's what test does it's what uh, it's what kepler used to do as well uh, and it's been a very very successful way of finding uh, of finding exoplanets by what we call the transit method sometimes called the wink method i uh, came across recently which oh, is a really a good, good name for it. putting it yeah, yeah it's the wink method um uh, which contrasts with the other method um of finding planets which is the wobble method the doppler wobble where you look for the, the the reflex motion of a star caused by a planet pulling it slightly from side to side. And the reason I mentioned that is because they've brought that method to bear on this object. So um, the, the reason why it's unusual is that when you when you um, when Tess finds a candidate uh, planet by the light of its parent star dimming slightly, uh, that is not an, uh, something you can announce as being a planet because there might be other reasons why that star's light would dim. Yep. Could 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 just be, you know, could just be a fault in the instrument or something like that. Dust. So, oh, yep, dust on the lens, the whole thing. But <laughs> no, it's not dust on the lens. Never the mind. Lens yeah, the lens cap. <laughs> so so when uh, when the test research team look at their data, single events are not exciting because that needn't necessarily be a planet. And so usually what they have to do to count as a discovery is see this planet pass in front of its parent star three times. Mm. Um, so they need to see three of these transits 
before it's confirmed as a planet. And that's perfectly sensible because, you know, that you've then got um, an idea of what the period of revolution of the planet is around its parent star. And you've got two estimates of that. And if they uh, tie up together, then, you know, you found the right thing. If you think of something in our solar system, like somebody looking towards our solar system uh, every year, they'd see a very slight dimming as the Earth goes past. Yeah. Now, well, um, if they looked at Earth directly, they'd see a lot of dimming. <laughs> yeah, they would. Oh, dear, yes. Anyway, we won't go there. Um, we're staying cheerful on Space Nuts this morning. The um, But so the, one of the numbers that I've already mentioned uh, suggest, should suggest that this thing uh, probably hasn't been observed three times because it takes nearly a year, it took, well, two-thirds of a year, uh, 261 days to compete complete a journey around its star. Uh, so it's um, what what happened was um, that there are, there are other groups who look at TESS data, and these are essentially citizen scientists groups who have access to the TESS data and look through it um, basically manually rather than leaving it to a computer to look for these dips in the light of a star. Uh, yep. These folk look through it manually uh, because they, you know, they can pick up things that you don't see that a computer would not detect. Um, and a gentleman called Tom Jacobs, he's a member of one of these groups. He's a former U.S. naval officer. Uh, he, basically looking through the data, saw the light of star TOI 2180 dim, uh, and uh, he got in touch um, with. Uh, Paul Dalba, who we've mentioned before, uh, and um, that essentially uh, started this research because Paul Dalba's speciality is studying exoplanets that have long orbital periods. In other words, they take a long time to orbit their stars. Yep. So uh, that's a very nice symbiosis. So uh, Dalba, being a professional astronomer, could alert the astronomical community uh, to try and, um, you know, first of all, get uh, an idea of whether this is a real planet by uh, by looking at the wobble method, uh, which is where you look at the way the star behaves because of the gravitational pull of the planet on it, and that's what has allowed the calculation of the mass of the planet, uh, TOI 2180b, um, and, you know, gives you some ideas of its orbit. Uh, now, um, the... The second transit has not yet been observed, I think. Um, there was a, um, basically a, a suggested one possible in August last year, um, and there is a suggestion that there will be another one coming up uh, sometime in February. Uh, I, I think that what, what this is implying, Andrew, is that this is not a circular orbit, that this is a fairly elongated orbit, right. uh, which has probably come from the, the wobble data. Um, so because August to February isn't 261 days. No. Um, maybe it is, actually. Right. Well, it's not. No, it's not. No, oh, it's the not. Top of May. It's not. It's shorter. It's shorter than that. So uh, it suggests that this has got a uh, an elliptical or elongated orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, the, the planet has been confirmed to exist because the wobble method has pr proved that, uh, and it's got all these apparently really interesting 
uh, attributes. As uh, as we've said, a giant planet. In fact, one headline is a giant planet had it hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Um, and and so uh, I think it's a very exciting uh, uh, an exciting object to be looking at because it is so unusual. Uh, and so when there is another transit that will allow more data on the orbit to be detected. People are actually looking for it already, or they will, certainly will be around the end of February. Uh, and, um, you know, all credit to this group of citizen scientists for flagging this. I'm a great yeah, that's fan fantastic. of citizen science. Yeah, really is fantastic. And it must be a delight to be able to actually uh, have potential confirmation in such a short period of time yeah. because I'm sure Paul gets frustrated when they discover an exoplanet and then they realise it'll be 500 years before we get before the second transit. And he's got to leave a note for his great, 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 yeah. great, 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 great grandchildren so that they'll have to check for him. Well, it could be. That's right. You're talking yeah, know. About, you know, yeah, it's uh, when you think about the, the outer planets of the solar system, the, mm. uh, Neptune's 200 and something years. I can't remember the exact number. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's extraordinary. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, now let's um, uh, move on to another search, and this one, this one came from uh, a listener who uh, picked it up on a, a forum website, the cloudynights.com website, and they're looking for a Falcon rocket body, and they're looking again to citizen astronomers to help them out with this. I think this is a really good uh, thing that people can get involved in. Uh, that's correct. It needs um, a, a bit of um, a bit of careful observation. I think this is one for the amateur astronomers in the community. Mm. But this is uh, a, a, an object. Uh, it's NORAD, which is the um, the categorization of of artificial objects in space. Uh, its number is forty three nine one, and apparently it's a Falcon rocket booster from earlier earlier this um this 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 decade probably actually last decade a few years ago right. falcon remember is the Sp spacex's flagship boosters nowadays they bring them back to earth uh, but a few years ago they didn't um and it's so it's it's in orbit uh around earth but it's it's been gravitationally interacting with the moon uh and uh, it's it's objects like this often en enter chaotic orbits. They they you know because they they're very lightweight objects. They're at the whim of the gravity of the moon and the Earth and the sun and the other planets. They they often change. You know their their orbits are often not not elliptical. They they're elliptical for a little while and then they change into something else and then they go back to being elliptical. Um, but now there is uh, a, a chance. That uh, well, first of all, uh, the interactions with the moon have essentially sobered up this, the orbit of this object uh, and given it a, a, a more predictable orbit. This is uh, four four or three nine one, the Falcon rocket body, and there is now a chance that it will collide with the moon. Um, in fact, uh, in in March, in a bit more than a month, about a month and a half early March right. this year. Uh, and so um, that's a really interesting speculation. It's not something that we could ever observe because uh, it's on the far side of the moon. But uh, it would be great to know if this is going to happen. And so this alert on the Cloudy Nights Forum, which is a very well-respected uh, you know, astronomy forum, 
that alert is for amateur astronomers who've got the capability to do astrometry, which is measuring the directions of objects very accurately uh, uh, to to try and observe it. Um, when it's when it is in a, in a position where it will be reasonably bright, um, in in other words, when it it's sort of um, if you like, in opposition, uh, in other words, on the opposite direction from Earth to the sun, uh, so that you see it brightly illuminated by sunlight. Um, so, yeah, it, there, it's easy to find if uh, any of the amateur astronomers on the Space Nuts forum uh, feel like going to cloudy nights, uh, Google Falcon Falcon rocket body possible impact, and I'm sure you'll bring it up because that has... An ephemeris, uh, at least a generator for an ephemeris. What's an ephemeris? That's a, a table that tells you where the object is going to be at a given time. Um, it's a, a, a very old term, but it's still widely used in astronomy. And mm. so it would tell you where to point your telescope. Uh, so during January and February, uh, amateur astronomers are being alerted to do this. And, uh, well, um, any space nuts, uh, astronomy enthusiasts who've got the wherewithal to do it are encouraged to check it out wouldn't it be awesome in, awesome if one of our people did actually locate yeah. it and gave and get, you know norad went oh it was a space nut that did that yeah <laughs> it would yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> all right uh yeah so yeah just uh, do a general search you should be able to find it or go to the cloudynights.com forum website and uh, look for it there the url here is 300 miles long so i yeah. won't read that out because um you have a bit of trouble remembering it but uh yeah it shouldn't be hard to find uh maybe norad would have something on their website after they've Probably, um, yeah. sent the boys over to check out you're okay to use their website uh but yes um good luck with that let us know how you go if you have a crack this is space nuts with andrew dunkley and professor fred watson Space Nuts. Now, have you signed up to be a patron yet? You don't have to, but if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can do that. Uh, just jump onto our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io, and you can click on the supporter button and find out how to contribute. And one of the options there that we introduced lately was to buy us a cup of coffee, which uh, a lot of people seem to have uh, shown a preference for, so fantastic. So, uh, in fact, someone said to me the other day, they've bought us three cups of coffee already. <laughs> which is good because there are three of us that uh, <laughs> yeah. put all this together. So um, that is fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, if you'd like to become a patron and make a regular contribution or just make a one-off contribution through the Buy Us a Cup of Coffee link, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com. Now, we have some questions, Fred, surprisingly, and uh, this first question is uh, from uh, Wes in Florida who's emailed us, esteemed fellows. I must have been for a different podcast. Um, two questions. If we talk of men going to Mars, why can't we service the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be significantly closer at L2? And why would you not uh, make fully ready and test the James Webb Space Telescope for errors when it is in Earth orbit before sending it on its way to its permanent station? I'm sure there's a good answer for these, but I've not heard the argument. You're about to, Wes, because there is a good answer. And Fred um, has actually spoken to somebody who's at the coalface in regard to this. Indeed, that's right, To, to certainly to one of the questions. Uh, the, the, the first question 
why is it not surfaceable if we can go to Mars? Well, the answer is we can't go to Mars we yet. Can't go there. And it might, <laughs> it might be more than the lifespan of the James, James Webb telescope, telescope by the time we get there. That's right. That's exactly right. It's, um, you know, the, the work that needs to be done uh, to get us to Mars, um, which, yes, would probably be applicable to, to get us to L2 as well, to have a service of JWST as, as well as a couple of other things that are out there. Um, it's probably a good option, though, because you could stop and use the restrooms and have a hamburger. <laughs> one day, one day, one day. Um, yeah, look, I like, I, I like your thinking there because, as you know, I'm a great proponent. If we're going to colonise space, I think we've got to do it by artificial structures. And L2 would be a great place to put one. Uh, yeah. get marvellous views of, uh, of the Earth in darkness all the time. So, that, yes, so it's just the technology isn't there yet. Uh, and... But physically, it's not impossible. But um, the second part of the question, um, I think, is essentially uh, why didn't we? Why didn't Do the we? checks and balances before yeah, we started. That's right. I'm trying to. I'm trying to put it in a way that um, it was checks and balances. But I, I think by that, um, our listener means actually assemble the thing uh, before I, it gets sent off. Uh, and and that's to do with, you know, the deployment of the heat shield, uh, the deployment of the mirror, uh, and all that stuff um, was, you know, what was was the risky stuff, the high-risk stuff. So let me uh, – so I've had a bit of correspondence on that with a, a, a colleague by the name of Philip Nance, who I talk to from time to time, um, and he sent – a uh, basically a, a, an inquiry on exactly this uh, to um, uh, John Mather, who's who's actually on the JWS team, JWST team. Uh, and so what Phillips wrote to John was, it surprised me that as Hubble was repaired in situ, a decision wasn't made to temporarily park James Webb Telescope in an orbit from which it was readily accessible from the International Space Station. At that location, the un-origamiing of, John, of J James Webb's mirror could have been monitored. Should problems have occurred, appropriate personnel could be delivered to ISS for spacewalk rectification if necessary. When carried out, the James Webb could then be boosted to Lagrange, perhaps leaving the mirror unfurled. Um, this would have added maybe 0.01% to the mission cost, but excellent insurance value. That's Philip's, Philip's uh, question. And... Uh, uh, let me read you uh, John's reply, mm -hmm. which is, Dear Philip, your question was, of course, our first one. Is it possible to deploy JWST in low orbit, check it, and then boost it? The problem we encountered is that after deployment, it's not nearly as strong as when it's launched. We uh -huh. thought that the additional boost to L2 would have been too much, would have given too much vibration and would damage the telescope. In my next life, I'd like to come back and have a small booster that is much more gentle, so your idea would work. <laughs> there you mm. go. That's from the horse's mouth. The other problem, of course, in low Earth orbit, you open the mirror and uh, there's no way of wiping all the dead bugs off it. Well, it's, yeah, <laughs> space junk and all the rest of it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and that too, that would be a risk. <clears throat> For sure. Mm. There could okay. be dead so, bugs out there, Andrew. It's one of the interesting things. They found microbes on the outside of the yes. International Space Station. And, and tardigrades. 
Yeah, well, there's lots of tardigrades around, yes. <laughs> mm. All right. Uh, thank you, Wes, for your question. Our next question comes from Cameron in Arizona. Cameron, I'm a uh, astronomy master's student from Arizona in the United States. And I was just wondering if you guys had seen the latest Netflix special called uh, Don't Look Up, which considers a comet coming to destroy Earth from the fourth cloud. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the accuracy and what you guys thought of that movie. And to piggyback off that, about the Oort cloud, we theorize with a high degree of confidence that it's there, but we haven't actually observed anything from it yet. So I was wondering if you knew of any uh, programs that were currently in the works to try and detect actual Oort cloud objects, uh, like the one that was mentioned in that movie. So I love the show. Hope you have a great day. Thank you, Cameron. We have talked about Don't Look Up before, and it's a movie that's received a lot of traction in the world of geeks. And it's uh, it's, it's a sort of a dark comedy. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but uh, as Fred and I have discussed, a uh, very unlikely scenario given the monitoring that's going on. We'd be well aware of something like that long before they portrayed in the film. Would that be fair to say? Fred? Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen the I haven't seen the movie. You have, um, yes, and, but um, that that's correct. Look, look, I I'm assuming that at the start of the movie, which is you know what we're being asked to to comment on, um, <clears throat> they said uh, there's an an oil cloud object that's on its way in. If it's uh, if it's big enough to do damage, you're quite right, Andrew. We would we would have found well, it. This one was uh, purported to be five to nine kilometers in diameter. Yeah, yeah. So. That would do a bit of a. It would be bright enough to, for for all these telescopes, you know, to to detect it. And clearly, that was the story in the uh, in the movie because they knew it was coming. Yes, but they knew too late. They knew too late. Okay, right. Mm. So uh, yes, uh, and it's a, it's a fun film. Uh, you shouldn't take it seriously. Uh, it certainly uh, is leaning very far to the side of science fiction rather than reality but uh they, they do they do have a lot of um known processes in place that um that probably would be employed under the circumstances uh, notwithstanding the inept government decision makers so <laughs> that's fine now the second half of cameron's question is totally eluding me uh, the oort cloud yeah it's about whether we could detect oort cloud objects in situ Mm. Uh, and could the James Webb Space Telescope see them? And it's a really interesting question. Um, the Oort cloud, of course, is, is you know, it's a, a fifth of the way to Proxima Centauri. It's, it's interstellar distance from the, the sun. Uh, it's this shell of objects which are what become comets when they fall into the inner solar system. They're icy bodies. Um, most of them seem to be relatively compact in size. Um, you know, that sort of five to nine kilometres that you were just talking about there, that that sort of uh, size is is what you would expect the typical yeah, nothing to worry about. object to be. Um, and, well, it's to worry about if one hits the Earth, but in terms of trying to see one of these things at the distance of the Oort cloud, uh, it's... Um, probably a non-starter. Uh, and there's a really interesting um, analysis of exactly this question, uh, which is, I might just direct you to the nextbigfuture.com website um, and, and look up 
if you Google direct imaging of Oort cloud objects, it'll probably take you to this. And there's a really nice calculation uh, done by an astronomer. Um, I think his name is Brian Wang. Uh, he's certainly credited, credited as the author of this page. Uh, but the calculation, which is very compelling, I've had a quick look through it, uh, is that the typical Oort cloud object is going to be at magnitude 41. Now, magnitude 7 is the faintest we can see with the unaided eye, and this is a logarithmic scale. So um, every five magnitudes is 100 times fainter. Um, and so magnitude 41 is breathtakingly faint. Right. Uh, it, it is uh, well beyond the, cape, the limit of the James Webb, which is round about, uh, it's about 21, I think. It might be, it's more like 30. The James Webb is about 30. Uh, okay. And this is uh, in a magnitude in, the, or brightness in, um, in the infrared wavelength region. Uh, whereas the calculation is that it's about magnitude 41, 11 magnitudes fainter. Uh, to see by the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a factor of about 100 billion. <laughs> so um, what this uh, really nice piece of work uh, uh, basically uh, ends up with is the conclusion that if you want to detect dwarf planets in the Oort cloud, um, and I can't remember what typical size. Yeah, they've talked about these are bigger Oort cloud objects, uh, 20 kilometers or so radius. So that would be big to start with for an Oort cloud object. Yeah. If you want to detect one of those in the Oort cloud, you need a space telescope with a mirror 11 kilometers in diameter, which we haven't got. We've got one 6.5 meters in diameter, or we will have by the time it's fully deployed, um, but not 11 kilometers. So no, the answer is we... We can't detect objects in the Oort cloud, and there aren't any programs yeah, to try and do that. That 11-kilometre one, I think, uh, yeah, they're going to start working on that next week. <laughs> there was um, certainly I've been involved, actually, with programs looking not for Oort cloud objects but diff distant uh, Kuiper belt objects way out there beyond the orbit of Neptune's trans-Neptunian objects, which are much nearer than the Oort cloud, uh, looking for them by the transit method. In other words, a bit like what TESS does, ah. um, by looking for the dimming uh, of, a, of a star as one of these things passes in front of it, because that would be on a timescale of probably milliseconds rather than minutes as the typical planetary transit is or hours. Um, but uh, so far, I don't think there's been much progress with that kind of work. We were trying to do this with the UK Schmidt Telescope when I was astronomer in charge at the at the Australian Astronomical Observatory, but we're using fibre optic systems to do it, um, mm. and uh, we didn't find anything. <laughs> ah, well, probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right, yeah. Uh, Cameron, uh, thanks so much for reaching out. Lovely to hear your voice too, and if you would like to ask us questions or send us questions, you can do that via our website, Space Nuts Podcast. Uh, .com or spacenuts.io and just click on the send us a question link or the AMA tab where you can do it the old-fashioned way and send us an email. 
I still can't believe we call that the old-fashioned way these days. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's the way it is. Uh, one more thing before we go, Fred. There's a special event on this weekend. Oh, there uh, is. Sort of celebrating your radio career with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. That's right. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to believe, but uh, this coming Sunday uh, is the 25th anniversary of my fir- first. Uh, regular slot with the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It was on a on a breakfast program in Sydney. Uh, it was a presenter who's still going strong. He does the uh, the late night program Nightlife here in Australia or in New South Wales at the moment. His name's Philip Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Philip thought it'd be a good idea to get an astronomer on on his breakfast show. It, what he was what he did actually it was very clever. He he um, sort of. Uh, you know, they, they looked for people whose job was essentially overnight, uh, and every day of the week they had a different person. This was a regular thing. My slot was, I think, Thursdays. So every Thursday, uh, he thought he was getting an astronomer who was just going to bed because uh, he'd been up all night. But of course, astronomers don't always work at night. We work a lot of the time during the day. But there were other people like uh, um, people at the Sydney fruit market and people of that sort who work all night to get the fruit ready. The emergency doctor now, um, I'm sadly, I can't remember his name offhand, a very well-known head of emergency at, I think, um, uh, Prince Alfred Hospital here in Sydney, uh, he he was also on this show, um, uh, and, you know. So so people people um, got their start in radio by um, having uh, the jo- a job that he, the radio presenters thought would get them up early in the morning, or would yeah. have them going to bed early in the morning. He could have just talked to the guy that was on before him every day. That he could have done that too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was great, uh, and I talked to Philip for two years, and then sort of got handed over to other people uh, over the over the twenty five years. One of the other people I got handed over to uh, was a fellow by the name of Andrew Dunkley. Yeah, uh, yeah I remember <laughs> getting a call saying, "Do you want to talk to this?" Fred fellow on it. Oh, do I have to? <laughs> now, I kind of inherited you from another person who worked at the same station as me and she moved on and I kind of picked up the, the baton, uh, which yeah. I was very thrilled to do because I thought it was just a, a great thing to do in breakfast radio and, uh, and yeah, we, we did that for, what, a decade? It must have been about that, Andrew. Yes, I, yeah. I should check that. I probably have that It record. might have been longer than that. I don't know. I, I was there 22 years, so, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I guess it could have been longer. I think it was. But, um, <laughs> and we collaborated on a few things. We did a little bit of TV there for a while. And yep. um, it's kind of manifested itself into Space Nuts. Well, it metamorphosed into Space Nuts. That's right. So yeah. we are the – Space Nuts is the legacy of all that ABC stuff. Yeah, it is. Um, it is yeah. indeed. And of course, now we're on the community radio network across yeah. Australia. So um, we've been everywhere, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just by good fortune, we still are too. Yes, indeed. And so, it's great fun. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I hope you have a lovely afternoon tea with yeah, we've, uh, we've the got ABC a little folk on Sunday. Drinks and nibblies with some ABC folk. Um, uh, uh, hopefully, the weather will be clear. Um, I don't know whether Philip. Is going to come because I haven't heard back from him, but certainly and a number of other presenters. Um, Robin Williams, who's one of the great names in science uh, broadcasting here in Australia, he's been at it longer than I have, actually. Mm. He's been at it for 60 years. Uh, he said he might bring a tape recorder along to get some recollections and things like That'd that. That would be lovely. Yeah, well, if, nice. um, if, if you remember 
anybody that I might know say hello for me. I will. I wish of I course. could be there, but I, I, I doubt yeah. it. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, um, I'll make sure people know about Space Nuts. They probably wouldn't let me in, Fred. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you well, look, former station manager, they'd have to let you in, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, you never know. Yeah, there's no badge to prove it, though. <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> All right. Um, yeah, and congratulations on 25 years. Still going strong, uh, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> on evenings now. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's the best time slot for it, really. It's nice, yeah, half past yeah. nine. That uh, suits me very well. Indeed. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Fred, as always. It's uh, great to catch up, and uh, thanks for um, for spending some time with us again this week. Uh, my pleasure, and uh, Space Nuts rocks. Yeah, it does. Moon rocks particularly. Moon rocks as well, yes, that's right. Magnetic connotations. Oh, yeah. uh, Thanks, Fred, and we'll see you next week. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you so much again for joining us on Space Nuts. We'll catch you very soon on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.